Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, an antitrust partner at Freshfields in Washington, D.C. and Brussels, and you're listening to the Essential Antitrust Podcast. In spring of 2023, the antitrust bar in the U.S. and beyond were watching the Department of Justice's suit challenging Asa Abloy's acquisition of Spectrum Brands' hardware and home improvement business, which finally went to trial in April of this year. However, after just six days in the courtroom and an unexplained pause in the trial, news broke that the DOJ and the merging parties had agreed to settle the case, with Asa Abloy agreeing to divest certain businesses relating to mechanical door hardware and residential smart locks. This is really significant because it's the first divestiture settlement that the antitrust division has agreed to since Jonathan Cantor was appointed as its head in November 2021. To discuss the implications of this settlement, I'm delighted to be joined by two of our experts on the U.S. antitrust landscape who frequently advise clients on antitrust enforcement actions. First, we have Justin Stewart Teitelbaum, who's a partner in our Washington office and a former lead attorney in the FTC's Bureau of Competition. So Justin has worked on exactly this kind of case on both sides of the table. Great to have you back, Justin. Great to be here, Jen. We also have Angela Landry, who's a counsel in our Washington and Silicon Valley offices, and she spent time working on the government side as well, having previously served as an attorney advisor to a commissioner at the Federal Trade Commission. Thanks for joining us, Angela. Hey, Jen. So before we get into this sort of novel mid-trial settlement, I think first it might be useful to just kick off and talk a little bit about the context of the case. Angela, maybe I'll start with you. Can you set the scene for us by just explaining what the issue was with this acquisition? So back in September 2021, ASA Abloy announced its agreement to acquire the hardware and home improvement division of Spectrum Brands. As you mentioned, it would bring together their smart lock brands, which included Spectrum's Quickset and ASA Abloy's Yale brand, and premium mechanical door hardware, essentially high-end lock sets. And that would include Spectrum's Baldwin brand and ASA Abloy's MTech brand. The DOJ did an in-depth investigation of the deal, and almost a year to the day after the deal had signed, it filed an antitrust lawsuit to block the deal. So that was September 2022. In the complaint, the DOJ alleged that the transaction was likely to reduce competition in those two markets, again, smart lock brands and mechanical door hardware. In support of its case, the DOJ raised a few arguments including that the parties would have high combined market shares in both markets. It would eliminate head-to-head competition between the merging parties, which included eliminating competition in developing new smart locks. And then the DOJ also said that the transaction would raise the potential for anti-competitive coordination between asset abloy and the divestiture buyer once the transaction had completed because there were these ongoing entanglements that the DOJ had seen. Okay, so we have a tricky deal, issues raised by the DOJ. So in a normal world, parties would say, okay, maybe we can offer some remedies to get this thing done. Was that the case here? It was. The parties offered remedies before the DOJ even sued, but the DOJ decided that the remedy was not acceptable. It pretty much set a really high bar for the remedy package saying, in its complaint that the touchstone of any appropriate antitrust remedy is the immediate, durable, and complete preservation of competition. And the package that the parties had offered just didn't live up to that standard. What the DOJ said was that the package that was offered was a partial divestiture. It would have split up existing business units. It would have cut off assets from other parts of the business that would have been needed in order for the divestiture buyer to be able to compete effectively. 
And then, as I mentioned, the DOJ raised some concern about what it saw as ongoing entanglements between the company and the divestiture buyer. The parties did move forward with the remedy in parallel with the litigation, though. It was a revised divestiture package that included the Schaub brand, and they agreed to sell that divestiture package to Fortune Brands. The DOJ still said that the divestiture package was not enough, though. And this is all very consistent with what the DOJ has been saying under the Biden administration. Essentially, you know, back in January 2022, Jonathan Cantor, the head of the DOJ Antitrust Division, he gave a speech where he said that the DOJ would prefer to seek to block transactions rather than to accept remedies that didn't fully and completely preserve competition. The issues with that, he said, were accepting divestitures that were you know, less than perfect would risk competitive harm because they didn't completely resolve any all competitive issues. Uh, and the other issue was that remedy settlements don't move the law forward. And it's an important policy point for the DOJ that the law gets developed. And so that's what brought the parties and the DOJ to litigate the fix. Thanks, Angela. I mean, I think that's really helpful to contextualize what we were dealing with here. And I want to pick up on just this last point that you were talking about where the parties went to trial to litigate the fix. Can you just explain for those listening, what does that actually mean in practice? What are you doing when you're litigating a fix? Yeah, so litigating the fix is a term that's used when the primary dispute between the parties and the DOJ or the FTC is whether the remedy package that the parties have offered is sufficient to alleviate the competitive concerns with the main transaction and thus make it not unlawful under the antitrust laws. The case law on this is not entirely clear. I think both the DOJ and the parties had some pretty reasonable basis for their arguments. The DOJ's view was that it's the burden of proof is on the parties to prove that the proposed remedy resolve the competitive issues and make the overall merger lawful. But the parties disagreed. They said that the burden was on the DOJ to prove that the transaction as a whole, which includes divestiture, was anti-competitive. And so that would have put a lot more burden on the DOJ at the outset to show that the transaction was anti-competitive. And the party said, you know, the DOJ's position was meaningless, that's their word, because there was no question that the divestiture was in play. So arguing that some hypothetical merger was anti-competitive wouldn't really get you anywhere. And the judge in the case was pretty open to both sides' arguments. She indicated that she wanted some briefing from both sides on the issue and that, you know, kind of raised the stakes for both sides on that point. Okay, so we have, you know, a difficult case. We have a pretty comprehensive remedy on the table and some back and forth in court over who's going to bear the burden of proof that might make this a trickier case for the DOJ to prove. So, you know, with that in mind, Justin, maybe you can walk us through a bit this surprise settlement that came out after we had just six days in court, which is pretty unusual. Sure. And you're right, Jen. The settlement did come as a bit of a surprise, albeit that the judge had paused the trial without explanation for several days, which had led to observations that the parties may be in settlement talks. In terms of the scope of the remedy, the final settlement is wider than the deal struck with Fortune in several ways. It expands the scope of the Yale brand intellectual property divested to Fortune, giving Fortune the unrestricted right to use the Yale brand for both single and multifamily residences. According to DOJ, this expansion of the remedy was necessary 
to allow Fortune to compete for customers who needed Yale locks for all aspects of multifamily buildings, entranceways, communal areas, apartments, etc., which had been raised as an issue during the trial. It also gives Fortune an irrevocable license to the Yale Access software platform needed to operate modern smart locks so that Fortune can utilize that app indefinitely. The settlement further strengthens some of the provisions in the Fortune deal to expedite the handover of a manufacturing facility located in Vietnam, with the assertion by DOJ that Fortune could start to compete with Asa Abloy sooner rather than later. What is especially surprising and relevant to ongoing M&A considerations is the apparent break from the DOJ track record to date. As Angela mentioned, under Jonathan Cantor, the DOJ hadn't accepted any merger-specific remedies until this one. In his January 2022 speech mentioned earlier, he was careful not to rule out remedies completely, but there still seemed to be little room for remedies that could be palatable to the DOJ, or at the very least, the DOJ had set a high bar for the circumstances it would be willing to accept a negotiated remedy. Even after the DOJ and the parties agreed to the settlement, the DOJ's position is that, even though the agreed-upon divestor package is an improvement, it doesn't fully and completely preserve competition, and only blocking the transaction would have done so. But the DOJ was willing to agree to the divestiture under the circumstances and in the context of the merger litigation. So the settlement reached in this case indicates, in certain circumstances, the DOJ may be willing to step back from a merger challenge and the divestiture remedies may be utilized, including during a full-on trial process. Thanks, Justin. And you know, thinking about the point you made that this is administration where the DOJ really has not been open to accepting remedies, for companies that are looking at transactions that raise potential competition issues, can you expand a little bit on why we think the DOJ accepted the settlement in this case and what you know companies might be able to take from it for other deals? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I think that's a really important takeaway from this case. As a starting point, the uncertainty of merger litigation does carry inherent risk. This was something the DOJ recognized. In its competitive impact statement released with the settlement announcement, the DOJ said that it was, quote, the totality of circumstances and risks associated with the litigation, which presumably included the potential for unhelpful precedent on the burden-shifting issue that led the division to agree to a settlement. So I think it's clear that uncertainty over the outcome of the case was one of the things that brought the DOJ back to the negotiating table. A key takeaway is that as litigation develops, it can affect bargaining positions, and parties should keep this in mind when considering settlement options as a DOJ or FTC merger review process progresses. On the flip side, the settlement is broader than the divestor package the parties had initially offered, suggesting that they were also cognizant of the risk of an adverse outcome in the trial. Zooming out, the expanded divestor package is likely to have been influenced by litigation risks and costs. DOJ is claiming this as a victory, having been able to extract a greater concession from the parties than it otherwise would have if it had agreed to the settlement rather than sue in the first instance. That said, avoiding litigation altogether is in many instances a much preferable outcome for merging parties than settling during or shortly after a full-on trial, where it is clear from the outset that the DOJ or FTC is going to take issue with certain competitive overlaps and there is a clean remedy available, parties may prefer to offload overlapping businesses before the agency investigation even begins, a so-called fix-it-first strategy. Thanks for that, Justin. And I want to take it back to Angela for a second. And Angela, I don't want to make you do you know, too much crystal ball gazing here, but do you think that this case will have an impact on whether remedies, you know, become generally acceptable again going forward? Are we going to start seeing more remedies again, seeing more litigating the fix, or is this not really change a whole lot? Well, 
I think the case really puts the DOJ's willingness to litigate the fix to it to the test. With this case ending in settlement, any further judicial development of the standard will need to wait until another day. But on the one hand, the challenges faced in this case may give the DOJ and also the FTC pause before choosing to embark on merger litigation, seeking an outright block in the future. On the other hand, both agencies have been directed under the Biden administration to be aggressive on merger enforcement. And leadership at both agencies have indicated a willingness to accept the risks associated with pursuing merger challenges. They're willing to lose, but they also want to win, of course. You ask if uh, there's a likelihood of anything. I think the answer is the lawyer's answer, which is it depends. There's a lot of factors here that the DOJ and merging parties have to consider. So, you know, this case isn't the first one the DOJ has brought in this administration that has, you know, looked at litigating the fix. It might not be the last. It might be an indicator that the DOJ, you know, is viewing litigation with a settlement at some point in the middle of the trial as an option. It's, you know, it could be viewed as another tool to get a broader consent that they think comes closer to completely, you know, resolving competitive issues with the transaction, even if it's still not perfect. And that's something that the DOJ had said. But also, you know, to Justin's point, a fix-it-first remedy is probably becoming a more attractive option to parties so that they can avoid going to litigation altogether. And I agree with Angela. It, it depends. And I think one of the things it's highly dependent on, too, is a draw of a judge. In this case, the DOJ, we think, from out, as an outside observer, was reading the, the judge's body language and understanding that their risk may have gone up in the concept of litigating the fix. So to the point earlier, bargaining positions can shift during a trial, but that's not precisely predictable in advance. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's certainly a really good point, Justin. And, and clearly, we have parties here that are recalibrating their risk on the fly, as you do in, in any antitrust merger review. And I think all of these are trends that we're going to watch going forward. But but maybe, Justin, to put you on the spot for one last question, if you had a client looking at a deal right now who was thinking about whether to go in with a potential remedy package, what would you be recommending to them in light of this case? Sure. I think it's a great question. I mean, as with all potential merger control reviews, parties should consider the necessity of remedies and the associated scope of any remedy package offered, as well as the strategy and sequencing of such a remedy offer to the DOJ or the FTC. As in Asa Abloy's case, litigating the fix remains a potentially viable strategy that could allow parties to shift risk somewhat onto the DOJ to either one, consider accepting the remedy in advance of a suit to block, or two, adjust midstream and accept a remedy package as sufficient to avoid downside risk of an outright loss and associated precedential hurdles in future cases. We're out of time today, but thank you so much, Angela and Justin. It's been great to have you here to talk about a really important and interesting case happening in the U.S. For our listeners, thank you so much for joining, and we hope you'll tune in for our next episode where we're going to hand over the reins to our colleagues in Asia to talk about all of the interesting antitrust developments that are happening in the region. In the meantime, we hope you all have a good day and thank you for listening to Essential Antitrust.